everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Arch Study of You. I am beyond excited to have uh, my guest on today. You are going to uh, learn a lot. She is an international um, marriage counselor. She has been in the space for a long time. She brings so much knowledge and so much impactfulness, and it's going to be a lot of fun. This is not just for married couples, but single couples, single couples, single people, divorced people. You're going to learn so much about this. I am super, super excited. Heather, thank you for uh, coming on to the show. We are excited to get going. Let me just give you some background on Heather real quick. It's uh, She's a mother of, of eight children, stage four breast cancer survivor, uh, diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer at the age of 29 while pregnant. We are going to hear a lot about that. Um, she wrote a book, Fighting for Our Lives, My Battle with Cancer to Save My Baby and Myself. Um, she's the owner of High Thrive Coaching, which is an inter it's just internationally recognized. I cannot wait for her to get into this. This is going to be so much fun. So Heather, if you could just take real quick five, seven minutes, give us a little bit of background about who you are. Um, tell us a little about some things that we'd like to know and really just tell us about your why. All right. Well, thank you, Cameron. I'm excited and grateful to be here. This is such an honor and a blessing. And I hope to whoever's listening that you find something of value here, something a little more truth that leads you into greater levels of joy, happiness, connection to your loved ones in your life. That is what my mission is about, is to help heal marriages and families and really transform the way that society is happening right now. Um, I feel like the family is the heart of the society. And when you heal yourself and you heal your relationships with your loved ones, that has a ripple effect. And a lot of people are struggling out there right now. And a lot of people are just kind of going through the motions and you finally hit that point where you're like, oh my goodness, is this really my life? <laughs> There's gotta be more to it than this. And you have one of those big wake up moments and, and yeah. And so there are a lot of people that are struggling right now. And I say that society's kind of programmed us to fail in our relationships. It's not teaching us how to really connect to our true selves, how to let go of some of the false beliefs and stories that we've adopted about ourselves and our relationships, how to communicate with your partner, how to get your needs met, how to, you know, have healthy boundaries. And so because we aren't taught those things, it's really not your fault if you feel like things have been hard for a while. The good news is, is that we can learn how to do some new things. And when we do some new things in some new ways, then amazing things can happen. And you can step into one of the top 8% of couples, right? The top 5% of people out there that are living life in a very different way. And my heart, my passion, my drive is to get more and more people on that boat. And it's amazing to see more and more people are getting on the boat with me. And we're going to a totally different <laughs> reality than what most people are living. And so I like to shine that light and give people the opportunity to, to heal and to transform themselves and to experience greater levels of peace and joy. That's what happened with my life. Uh, going through cancer gave me one of those big wake up calls. Like I talked about, like, okay, I'm looking at my life maybe over in a year. Am I really who I meant to be? Am I really doing what I meant to do? And I realized there was a lot of things that I wasn't happy about with who I was, how I was treating people, what I was doing with my life, the things I was choosing to obsess about or worry about, and um, just had a beautiful gift of examining that and then saying, you know what, life's too short to live it 
anything else, then absolutely amazing. And to choose to just absolutely thrive, it doesn't mean that challenges don't come, right? But right. it's what we choose to do about them. So that's my passion. That's my mission. Um, I'm a total baby lover. That's why I have eight kids. <laughs> absolutely there you go. Love babies because they just have that fresh newness and there's none of the programming like all the crap that we take on as adults <laughs> right um, I just love their their energy um and so I have eight children and I do spend most of my time um raising and nurturing my children and then um I've developed this online marriage coaching business now that has helped save over 12,000 marriages so that's what I love to do in addition to being mom man Man, okay. If if you guys aren't just jacked out of your minds already, I mean, this is going to be, I told you, this is going to be a great, great in, information. It's going to be, we have a lot of fun. Um, but wow, 1200 marriages and counting internationally. I mean, come on, let's, let's have some fun. We're, we're privileged and honored to have you on. So let, before we get you, you, you mentioned a lot of things, right? A lot of things in that opening and we're going to get to them, right? But I want to start with where, where it all began, right? Your childhood, right? I love that. So give us an insight about how you grew up, where you grew up, um, were your parents entrepreneurs? Were they just, you know, punch the clock, you know, 40 hours a week, you know, five days a week, you know, work until I retire in 40 years. Give us, help us understand a little more insight to, to how you grew up uh, and, and then we can understand better how we can all connect with each other. Okay. So I'm the oldest of five kids. I was the big bossy older sister. I always loved to rope my siblings into doing performances and plays and music. I was very creative and very drawn towards like imagination. And I would get my siblings to do plays for mom on Mother's Day. And I had to ensure that it was done right. And so I was definitely the big bossy older sister. <laughs> um, my, my parents, we moved several times because my dad was in commercial real estate. And my mom was a homemaker and uh, I learned a lot from both of them as far as like my mom has incredible vision and kind of a no limits kind of thinking. And then my dad's a little more grounded and uh, just definitely kind of like pursuing corporate America, climbing the ladder. Uh, we moved from, I was born in Denver, Colorado, and then we moved to Ohio and then to Chicago and then back to Colorado. So I got a little bit of variety of yeah. different you know, subcultures in the United States. And uh, I remember when I was 14, we moved from Chicago to back to Colorado. And I was like, mom, people are so nice here. They actually smile at you. Like strangers are like saying hi. <laughs> I was like, what is with these people? <laughs> They're so nice. <laughs> and I, I just fell in love with Colorado. And so that's where I live to this day. But um, yeah, childhood, I would say was relatively calm and stable and happy. And my parents did their very best to provide a loving, safe environment for us. But at the same time, like all families, there were definitely things that um, made it challenging too. You know, it was a lot of trying to keep up with the Joneses and a lot of that expectation of material success. And then I saw from a very early age, um, I saw kind of through that, that lens of, you know, are you driving the coolest car and are you wearing the latest brands? And um, a lot of the materialistic commercialism. And from very early age, I rebelled against that. And I said, there's more to life and more to people than what they wear and how much they make and what their net worth is, <laughs> you know? Right. And I wanted people of real substance in my life. And um, so that kind of paved the way to meet my husband, Ben, 
which was very opposite of what I grew up with and what my parents were wanting for me, uh-huh. I'm sure, <laughs> but they came to love him and embrace right. him. <laughs> He's a, a country farm boy. And I was, you know, big city, you know, type of girl. So it yep. was definitely opposites working in that, in that way. Um, but I found a lot of, um, value in some of the things that my parents taught me about honesty and integrity and wanting to do good. But I also picked up on some core limiting beliefs. Like we all do. Most limiting beliefs are picked up before the age of seven. So between the ages of three and seven, the subconscious mind is just downloading information and you actually have no filter to analyze Mm -hmm. until you're about 11 or 12. And so everything is just being downloaded, right? That rich people are greedy or little girls should be seen and not heard, right? Big boys don't cry, right? You know, all those, just those, the programming there. And my earliest beliefs about myself was that I was somehow not good enough. So I remember from a very early age, feeling like I had to prove myself and prove that I was good enough and prove that I was worthy. And that's definitely something that I didn't realize until later in life, but put me into these limiting beliefs that created a story for me. And that's the reality that I created, right? We all see through the lens of our own perception. And so picking up on some of those things, like, um, that's just not really good enough. I need to prove myself. I'm not really worthy. Um, definitely the seeds of those started early on and, uh, had their effect later in life as well. So I'm I'm so glad you 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 opened up um, to that of this this limiting belief like this self doubt um, because it it's a it's a massive problem you know especially at a young age when you go through this I'm not good enough I compare myself um, I, oh I'm not like the Joneses right keeping up with this right living this lifestyle that um, I should be a certain way you said something very. Uh, important, right? Little girls should be seen, not heard, right? And boys, right? You know, well, boys don't cry. I mean, that's something I had my entire, my entire childhood. You get, you get hit, you fall down. You're like, hey, boys don't cry. You know, that's not what you're supposed to do. You don't cry. You're a boy. I mean, you just brush yourself off and get up. So I love how you, uh, you, you dove into that a little bit. So help us, help me understand kind of let's bridge this together. Was it the constant moving you know, from one place to another place and new environments that you just didn't feel like you fit in that caused that limiting belief for yourself or, or what was the triggers? Do you think that was, I'm not, not good enough. I mean, uh, this is what I should be, but I'm nowhere close to it. Help us understand, get into that space of how you were able to recognize that at, at such a young age. Yeah. Well, I don't, I didn't recognize it when I was young, but now looking back, you know, I can see some of those kind of trigger moments. Um, I think part of it was that I tend to shine really bright. And sometimes we have children that are very, um, very bright and very talented. And then we maybe have other children that we want to make sure that they're loved just as much. <laughs> and so sometimes um, you kind of maybe put the damper on the one that's shining too bright to make the others feel better. <laughs> And all of my siblings are equally bright. They're all equally amazing. But I felt like the more I tried to shine, the more I was kind of suppressed in that way. And so um, 
I feel like a lot of us are now afraid to let our real selves show and let our real light and our strength shine because maybe we were told that, that that's not okay, that that's not appropriate, you know, give your sister a turn here. Um, you know, you go be quiet and it's there, you know, and, and I probably was a little overbearing to it sometimes. So it was probably completely appropriate, but in the little mind of a four-year-old or a seven-year-old or, you know, a 10-year-old, they're saying, oh, I'm not good enough. Right. And, and so I need to be more like my sister or more like this other person that my parents are giving the attention and the praise to. Um, we're all coded from a very early age to want to be accepted by the tribe, right? Right. And so we learn what helps us be accepted by the tribe or not. And if we're crying out of, you know, I got hurt and emotion, and then you're shamed about that, you're going, oh, that's not safe. So it's better I don't feel this and I suppress this than I let my true feelings or my true self shown here because I don't want to get kicked out of the tribe. I don't want to get abandoned by my parents. Right. I don't want to be right. rejected by my peers. Um, so it was a combination of simple things like that, innocent things, but that mm -hmm. a child doesn't necessarily know how to interpret. So you develop that like, Oh, there's something wrong with me here. I need to be different so that I'm not rejected. And definitely, of course, going into preteen years, middle school, teen, you know, we all have those feelings of, what's wrong with me like <laughs> exactly right yeah oh hormones yeah. kick in and you're just now i mean that's a whole nother you know that's a whole nother oh man that's a whole nother space those of you that don't have you know high schoolers or junior high to high school kids just wait it's yeah. a lot a lot of fun let me tell you so well that's it's interesting. i'm glad that you're you know this shining look i mean this is not a knock on parents by all means, right? My parents, you know, my parents, your parents, they raised us the best that they could, right? They, they only had the examples of what they had when they were growing up, right? A lot of times it was, you know, the iron rod comes down on the kid, you know? And so your parent, that's just what they knew. So you got in trouble. Well, it was what, what could you, what could I grab, you know, to, to spank? And that's, that was just the examples that they had growing up, not to say it was bad or good or no, nowhere, um, nothing in between. Right. But from that, it's like, so let me ask this question. When you would talk about like, don't want to outshine, how is that now when you have obviously eight kids, how are you balancing that? Right. How are you balancing those triggers of, Oh, maybe I can see myself putting a little more spotlight on this one. And then not so much on this one. How are you finding that balance now? How are you seeing that? And then balancing that with, with eight kids. Yeah, it definitely can be challenging. Um, one thing I really have to work on with my kids, for instance, is just talking one at a time <laughs> and trying to give each one, you know, that attention and that space. Some of them are more needy than others. Some of them are more vocal than others. Some of them I have to kind of pull to get them out of their shell and, and to say that it's safe to shine just because that's their personality, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I try to create space for each of them to shine in the way that's unique to them and not have them get into the judging comparing game, but they still do because they're still kids. For yeah. instance, my husband's a, a pilot and my, my 14 year old is also becoming a pilot. So last night at dinner, his older brother, who's 15 said, oh, your dad's favorite because you're becoming a pilot, you know? And even in that moment, you know, I had to be like, I think he was kind of jesting, but you know, it's a little yep. bit of like something under there. So I had to, you know, talk to him about it and be like, Hey, you know, that's not really kind to say to your brother. And it's also not true. So you tell me, how is it not true? You know, so he doesn't start to develop those kind of beliefs of, 
I'm not doing exactly what dad did. So therefore I'm not the favorite, <laughs> right? So I, yep. when I see those kind of things happening, I definitely call it out. One thing that's kind of funny in our, our family, our kids like to ask me who the favorite is all the time because <laughs> they know I will never answer them and they like to try to guess. And I'm not sure why they're so fascinated by that. Right. <laughs> they try to get it out of me maybe because they know it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God right? You hear that all the time. And those are key buzzwords, right? I hear, in fact, my daughter the other night was just like, well, who was the hardest to raise? Well, well, who cried the most? Well, I, yeah. yeah, but, but I mean, but who, who was hard? And you're like, well, what do you, I, and you could, you, you, as parents, right? You're like, well, I know what you're trying to say. You want me to, well, this one was super hard and this one was super naughty, but this one was just angelic. And it was like, they were dropped out of heaven and it was so perfectly packaged, right? <laughs> so then you're right that the kids are, they're so keen to pick up on certain trends and certain things that you say. And I love, I love how you told your, your, your 14 year old, or no, you sorry, your 15 year old. That's not true. You explain to me why that's not the case. You explain to me why you're not, why that were you saying you were the favorite, why that's not true. I love how you say that. That's unbelievable. I'm going to take that as a, take that on as a parent. So last question here about just growing up, moving so much, like you move from, especially going from Colorado over to, you know, Chicago area. I've been to Chicago. I love Chicago. Take the L been to Wrigley. It's beautiful. What did that have when you go from, you know, that Colorado grow up to the big city, you know, and, and then back, like, what did, what did that have, especially at, at your age of just trying to be like, man, I gone from, like you said, man, people are so nice. Like what did that, that what impact did that have, or did it have any impact at all? Well, I was really shy actually as a child. So it was hard for me to go from having friends, you know, little playmates when I was very young to having to make new friends and be the new kid in school. Uh, I think so many people can relate to that. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, little life lessons at a very early age about, you know, where is my security? Where is my strength? And to me, I found that I've developed even deeper relationships with my siblings. And I love that with my own children is that friends, yes, they, they're important and they tend to come and go though. Very rarely are you still friends with your friends that you were friends with when you were five, right? Right, right. <laughs> but your siblings and your family, uh, those are the people that stay with you for life. And, um, and so that deepened my connection with my own siblings and it helped me become a little more adaptable. Um, I remember when we moved, so when it was first from Denver to Ohio, to the Cleveland area, and then to Chicago, um, by the time we moved to Chicago, I was, let's see, nine. And so at that point I was really starting to pick up on this kind of fakiness of the culture. Mm -hmm. And we moved to a very affluent town in a very affluent neighborhood. And we, I felt like we were like the poor kids there. You know, I felt like my mom's shopping at Goodwill. What's the matter with us? You know, <laughs> like we had five <laughs> kids, most people had two, maybe three, you know? And so definitely starting to feel like, you know, I'm definitely different than other people out there. Um, and, and yeah, so it was just kind of interesting to experience different cultures and even from a young age, be able to kind of perceive some of, <laughs> some of the falsities in the culture and choosing like, I don't necessarily have to accept that. Now I definitely did try in middle school to kind of keep up and wear the cool clothes and everything and I totally was rejected and was totally like the loser <laughs> on the lunch table. And, you know, that was, 
hard at the time. It was heartbreaking and whatever, but um, built some tenacity, right? And built an ability to appreciate friendships that are genuine and that people that love you for who you really are and are your friend for who you really are, rather than what you wear or how you look, you know, or your popularity status. All of those things are very, very surface level. So I think it was a gift to be the loser and <laughs> to be the rejected one at an early age because it helped me see, you know, the genuineness in, in people and more of like the surface level fakeness of people. So yeah. Man, Man I've never heard I've never heard of that before. Like you're being appreciated being the loser. You know, that's that's <laughs> That's new, but hey, we I, we learned so much on this by doing this. That's that's interesting that you were able to pick up on some of that the fakeness, right? The Joneses, the the misperception you hear a lot in the in in the world, you know, fake it until you make it, you know. Um, but be able to recognize that at such a young age, what was that like? Nine? Would yeah. you say nine? Then that's nine years old. I mean, you're what? Still fourth grade, fourth fifth grade. Right. And then you get into junior high, right? So I want to ask you this question because it's very fascinating to me. Very, very fascinating to me. When you transition and from that fifth to sixth grade, then you jump into junior high, which is uh, here in Utah, it's you know sixth and seventh grade. Some places are seventh and eighth grade. That transition, what, what causes kids from that transitional phase right? From that sweet, innocent. And now they get into like junior high and they're like, what happened to you? Like, you're not even my child, right? What, ha what happens? How does, where's that switch or why does it switch? Oh, I wish we knew, right? <laughs> I'm not the expert on that, but what I've heard other people that are a lot smarter than me talk about as far as like the brain development of children, um, is that, yeah, they're in their subconscious, like pure subconscious until they're about six or seven. And then they go in and out of that state until they're about 11 or 12. And that's right when puberty starts hitting and around 11, 12 is when you actually start to go into, um, alpha and beta beta mm -hmm. is the analytical reasoning part of the brain. And so that's when we really start to see like self-awareness and, picking up more on like social cues and positioning, you know, like, where am I in this hierarchy and, and all those different things. Am I going to get kicked out of the tribe? Is the tribe going to accept me? And so I know from studying other people a lot smarter than me, that that is kind of what's going on in the brain at that time. And then there's just a lot of different cultural expectations too, that we see, um, you know, in all different cultures around the world, there's a lot of you know, transition rituals between a child to becoming a man or a child and becoming a woman. We've got, you know, bar mitzvahs and, you know, all different kinds of things that, that happen around that age, um, different cultural expectations about kids and what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to think now and how they're supposed to behave, which definitely has an impact as well. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. I knew, I know you didn't, you know, the expert, but being that you're an expert in family and marriage counsel, you'll say you're not, I'll say you are. And we'll, and I'll, I'll, show that here in a second, but knowing that I, I guarantee you that has probably helped you immensely when you're talking with, you know, the different families and, and you know, setting goals and benchmarks and setting, you know, things and, and getting rid of these triggers and, and, and just building a better and brighter future for them, which I think is fantastic. 1200 families, you got to be doing something right, which is, <laughs> which I absolutely love. So I want to transition now into getting to more of what you do really well. So I got to read this because I thought it was fantastic. Um, I read an interview you, you did in December 27th of 20, uh, 2021 with Influential People News. 
I will have, um, and I'll have the link below in the description, so don't worry about it. I need to ask, um, as I'm sure everyone is wanting to know, uh, 10 weeks pregnant, 5% chance of living. This is baby number six, and you were diagnosed with stage four cancer. The doctor tells you uh, you need to abort the baby so you can live, and yet you tell them, I, I'd rather die than take the life of my child. Please help us. Please please help us understand like the whole emotional thing of the cancer being pregnant and telling the doctor, no, I'll die before I, I, I abort my child. Oh, yes. A big one there, Cameron. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just take you guys back to, um, so I just had my fifth baby and was really working on my health and my nutrition and really working to just become, you know, um, just working on my diet and like, I don't know, just wanted to do something better. And I started noticing a lump above my left breast. And I thought that's kind of weird. And then I got pregnant again, pretty quickly after baby number five with our sixth baby. And so I go into my midwife and I tell her I've noticed this. And this is the part that actually saved my life is that she took it seriously. Um, unfortunately for a lot of other women, it gets kind of just brushed off. And so luckily she went in and got an ultrasound immediately. And then ultrasound led to a biopsy. And the whole time they're telling me you're so young, you have no family history of cancer. It's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing the biopsy and then they're going to tell me in three days. So it's now the summer and we're living in Southern Colorado out in like the forest, like beautiful pine forest and a beautiful big meadow. My five young ones are outside playing in the summer and the sun. And I'm really missing that right now because it's cold winter snowing right now. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to go back to that. Right. Remember that it's not always like this here in Colorado. <laughs> uh, and so I'm sitting on the deck and um, my kids are playing in the trees and this is one of those moments, you know, like a September 11th, the moment everyone knows exactly where they were when they found out about it. And so I'm sitting on the porch and everything's just like, my life's amazing. Like my kids are healthy. They're beautiful. It's warm. It's gorgeous day. And I get the call. It's my midwife. And she's like, Heather, we got the results back. And I'm like, okay, you know, not thinking it's going to be too much, but I take in a breath and she says it's cancer. And just absolute shock. You know, you just feel like sucker punched. Like that was not what anyone told me I'd be hearing. Of course, I, I knew it could be a potential, but it was the furthest thing from my mind. I had never even like known people who had actually gone through cancer, like very close to me personally. And so it seemed like a very distant, vague kind of thing. Um, and so I get off the phone with her and immediately call my husband, Ben, who was at work. And I tell him, and then I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, tunnel vision, like what just happened, you know, an immense amount of like, holy crap. And then the next thing that comes to my mind is what about the baby? Here I am 10 weeks pregnant. And I'm like, what does that mean for this child? So it wasn't just about me and having to deal with cancer and whatever that looked like, but it was also about this child that I was carrying. And, um, so then we met a few days later with the surgeon there in, uh, Durango, Colorado, and he looked us in the eye and he said, this cancer that you have is hormone sensitive. And so the hormones that are feeding your baby to help the baby grow are making the cancer grow. And that's why I noticed it just grow really rapidly. Um, and so he says, we need to take action immediately and you need to abort the baby to save your life. Um, and I looked at Ben, he looked at me and we said, 
no, I, I told them I'd rather die than take the life of my child. Um, for me, I knew that that was something that I couldn't live with personally. And I know that's a very individual, you know, decision and that everyone's going to have, you know, anyone that faces that I have no judgment with whatever your choice in life is and whatever you feel like is the right thing to do. But I also feel like there's a part of us that knows truth for us. Right. And that's what we really have to listen to because I just thought about like, okay, say I do abort the baby and I live to me, that's something I just couldn't like live with. So <laughs> thanks be to God that uh, my husband was right there with me in supporting that decision entirely. Um, and so it was not even like a question in my mind. And then it got kind of scarier from there. Um, we found out that it was very aggressive and that most women that have this and don't terminate the pregnancy, it does not end well for them. We started looking at other options, you know, natural options, talking to different doctors. And it was like the same thing that we heard across the board. And we just had to hold fast to what we knew we needed to do, which was to save my life and to keep the baby and just kind of turn it over to God. So we're people of faith. And so that's just, you know, we had to rely on that and surrender that outcome and just know that it was going to be okay, no matter what. And so in the course of time, we found an oncologist up in Denver that actually is one of the top five specialists in the world for young women with cancer, especially pregnant women with breast cancer. So it was like the stars aligned and we made the seven hour drive up to meet her in Denver. And um, I'll never forget what she told me as we were meeting with her. She's like, I know this is really scary for you, but for me, it's just another Tuesday. Well, thought that was kind of like a strange thing to say. I felt a little like, oh, you don't know how hard this is. But then I thought about it later and I was like, that's actually amazing because I know that I'm in the hands of an expert, right? Someone that knows what they're doing. They do this every single day. And so that helped me. And through prayer and talking about it with my husband, we felt confident in going with what she, um, the treatment plan that she had for us, which was not easy. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was the Man. whole gamma of emotions of, of shock and, and fear and anger <laughs> and, uh, faith and determination and, and all of that across the, across the board there. Oh my gosh. Like I could just feel, I could just feel, Man, I could just I could just feel that as you're reliving it, right? You said it perfectly, like like 9-11, everybody knows where exactly where they were. I could just feel you reliving all those emotions, all that, all those that decision to declare, like I you no, you're not taking my baby. And then all probably everybody giving you sound advice, right? Well, you know, based on, you know, based on this, you know, and you just held firm. Oh my gosh, like I have goosebumps. I, I can't tell, but I have I have goosebumps. I literally have goosebumps. So I, I want to get to ask you a question around this, but I have to ask this question. How did your husband react when you, to such a declaration? Look, I mean, he, he would have been a widower of five kids, you know, how, how did he react through this whole thing? I mean, there had to have been him somehow, somewhere with him, like in those quiet moments, like I would, I mean, we're going to get into you, but I think I would just love to know, like, how did he react? Like, what was his initial? And then how did he just respond throughout the whole process? 
well, I'm not him, but I'll share with what he shared with me. <laughs> um, right. It was definitely the same, you know, a ton of shock. And then he got into um, get it done mode, right? He became the, the quote unquote strong one, which had its pros and cons. <laughs> and there's been a different kind of journey for both of us, right? In this whole experience now, it's been, um, let's see. So that was in 2014. So about seven years and going through this whole process now. And so, you know, seven, eight years. And um, yeah, the thing that I was so grateful for though, was his absolute commitment to me and his commitment to our family and his, his faith in God. And so that was a rock to me um, and that he relied on as well. For him, it wasn't a question either about, you know, keeping the baby or not. And so I was grateful that we were unified in that. It would have made it a lot more challenging if we weren't. <laughs> and so I'm grateful that he was right there with me. Like, yeah, this is what we need to do. And we're going to figure it out. Um, he got a little bit, I, I don't know, this might not be the right word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway, man mode. <laughs> like, and I don't think it has anything to do with being um, male or female. I think it's like the masculine energy of mm -hmm. we have a challenge here. Let's do what we need to do and let's get it done. And I'm going to do what I need to do here to get it done. Right. Um, which is a strength and, and a good thing in moments of crisis and in moments of challenge that we all have to have that. Like, I can't just sit here and like cry or freak out and like worry about it and talk about it with my mom for 10 hours. Like that's not going to get anything done. Right. Right. <laughs> And so he brought that, that strength, um, and that determination and that we call it get her, get her done attitude. <laughs> right. There you go. I love that. Get her done attitude. You know, cause you're right. There, there are three emotions, right? Either it's the fight, the flight or the freeze, you know, and I'm sure through this whole ordeal, one of those three emotions probably popped up throughout this entire, I mean, you were 10 weeks, 10 weeks pregnant. Anybody, it, anybody knows how long you have a kid It's 36 weeks. Sometimes it's past 39. I mean, you still had a long process, a very long process. So that's awesome. I think that is so cool. That bond that you guys had, and we'll, we'll get into this bond a little bit later, but take us down that process of the, the 10 weeks to, you know, actually having that. I mean, probably just, I, I don't know what it's like to have cancer. I've never been through that. I, I, rarely hear from anybody that I know of how, but what is it, what kept you going? What kept you through that process? Because I'm sure, I don't know chemo, I don't know what treatment they had you on, but I'm sure there were plenty of nights of just like, I, I'm done, you know, I'm done. But so help us get us into that space of just what helped get you through those, those lonely nights and what helped sustain you. Mm, yeah, that's definitely connecting me to some, some powerful emotions there. Um, so what we were looking at was four treatments of chemotherapy while pregnant in the second trimester. And it's a very dangerous kind of chemotherapy, but it's one that the placenta blocks and keeps the baby safe enough from. It was still not an ideal situation, but it's, you know, what we needed to do. Um, and it, I, earlier in our marriage, for some reason, we talked about this. I said, I'm never going to do chemo. Like if I ever get cancer, I'm never doing that. <laughs> and so here I am like in a hospital chair with Ben and I'm about like 14 or 15 weeks pregnant now. And I see this chemo and it's the color of blood, this type of chemo that they give me. It's um, called 
adriamycin, and it comes from the Adriatic Sea. It's a moss that grows and it's an incredibly potent and it's the color of blood. So it's like coming down and it's going into, um, you know, my port there. Actually, no, it was in my arm at the time. Then I got the port after that. And I remember just like, okay, this is the moment of surrender. And I had to turn it over in my, you know, in my beliefs to God. And I'm like, okay, I felt like the mother of Moses when she lets her baby go and is put onto the Nile and there's alligators and there's bad people out there that are killing Israelite baby boys, you know, and just that moment of absolute surrender. I can't imagine a mother like taking their baby and allowing them to be put onto the Nile river. Um, and that's kind of how I felt. I felt like a kinship there to what she must've gone through and feeling like, okay, this is bigger than me. I can't even protect this own baby in my, in my body, um, from what's coming into me. And so I just have to turn it over. And so it was, that was the biggest, the biggest lesson and the biggest experience was these moments of, I've been pushed to the brink here and I have nothing left so that I can give. And I just have to surrender. Um, and I found every time I did that, an immense amount of peace and calm of knowing that it was all going to be okay. Even if it didn't happen the way I wanted it to just a little bit of prior background to this. I was a bit of not necessarily a control freak, but I'm a very independent person. And I like, I make things happen. I'm a go-getter. I do in the, I put in the reps, I do the work, you know, I show up, I give the blood, sweat, and tears to make things the way that I think is going to be best for everyone. And this was a situation where I couldn't do that. There was nothing that I could do other than just turn it over. And I found that letting go of my need to try to control it and make it a certain way um, created so much room for a peace and a serenity that I had never felt before in my life. And so that was an incredible experience and it changed a lot of the way that I looked at things and the way that I felt about things, things I used to stress about or worry about before. I'm like, Oh my goodness, honey, that's a new issue. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And not even worth a second of your time. <laughs> so it was a lot of that. Um, the, oh. the final I wanted to share was just, uh, at the end. So, uh, well, there's so many, so many moments, but the baby was, baby was born, um, January 6, 2015, beautiful, healthy little girl, um, over eight pounds, full head of hair. She had more hair than I did. Cause I was actually bald from the chemo. So I'm got big belly and a bald head. And, uh, yeah, I actually had someone whistle at me at the gas station like that. And that made me no. really happy. Oh, it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so she was born healthy and just perfect. Um, and then after that, I had to do the chemotherapy that I couldn't do when I was pregnant, which was extremely challenging. Uh, we had now six children. My husband was taking care of the newborn baby and I had to go in, um, for, I believe it was 16 weeks, 12 or 16 weeks of really intense chemotherapy. And the last two weeks I felt my body shutting down. Like I felt the feeling of like my life is slowly slipping away here. And I just had this inner knowing that if I kept doing this, like you're going to die. Like you could just tell it wouldn't be like the next day, but I could just tell like Heather, if you keep doing this, like this is going to kill you. <laughs> like the chemo yeah. is going to kill you. And I told Ben, I can't do it anymore. I've done. I don't want to do the next. I can't two weeks doesn't seem long to most of us. Right. Cameron. Right. Right. Most of us, like, <laughs> I can all. do something Not for two all. weeks. Right. I can get mm -hmm. through it. And to me, it was like, that's an eternity. 
I couldn't even bear, you know, another day or another minute. And he's like, I know, I know Heather, you just have to. And so at that moment, I just relied on him. And again, God to get through that, that last bit, that last push that was truly beyond my limits. I'm a pretty strong person. I can take a lot, but that was way beyond what I knew I could do. So moments like that of I've done everything I can do. I have nothing left to give. Uh, and then finding that there is still strength there and there's peace when you let go. 